Yeah, so we're looking at Ezra, uh, sorry, Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And here it reads, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you today, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if, you are, even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed with your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, speak to your people this morning and cause their faith to be strengthened by your word and cause them to find uh, courage to trust you when things are hard and I cause them to, to be encouraged, Lord, by your word this morning as we look at Nehemiah and his courage to trust you and his faith in you. Pray and ask 
All of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we live in a world where uh, bad things are a normal part of life. With COVID over the last two years, I'm sure it's not something that I need to remind you of. But we, even before COVID, bad things were a normal part of our existence. We even brought them nearer and nearer to ourselves through things like television, which by and large only tell you the bad things that are happening in the country every evening with our phones, with the news alerts telling us the worst of things happening either on social media or happening in government or all the way across the world. Instant messaging has made uh, us to be a, a sort of like a universal community. That instant messaging and the internet, basically. That when, when something bad happens in Cape Town, we know about it very, pretty soon, around the same day. When something bad happens in the US or in Canada or wherever, we know about it. We even uh, we have bad things that we use to fill spaces in our lives, like entertainment. We watch soapies that have incredibly sad narratives in them. We read books that have tragedies in them. We are used to bad things happening. We are so used to them, in fact, that we have almost become desensitized to the bad things. Become desensitized to seeing people die. Because you see that all the time in the movies. Become desensitized to seeing the suffering and pain of others. Because we can, we can always go on the internet and Google and find people who are far worse off than that individual. We do not have godly sorrow in our culture. You know, I venture to say that it is lacking even within our churches as well, because we are part of the world, even though we are not of the world, we are still part of it. This morning, we're going to look at what godly sorrow looks like in a way to sort of revive our hearts and cause us to be concerned for others, to be people who are not inward looking. This passage is similar to what you, what you saw when you looked at the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Um, actually, right from chapter 1, you saw the examples of people like Timothy, Prophetitus, uh, who had genuine concern for the welfare of others. This morning, as we come to the book of Nehemiah, we come to a man who is uh, who, who's expressing godly sorrow at what is happening to the people of God. And, our, and, and the, the encouragement to us is to learn from this godly sorrow, that we may develop it as well ourselves. So look with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The first thing that we see there is that godly sorrow is moved 
by the pain and suffering of others. Godly sorrow is moved by the pain and suffering of other people. We see this in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, uh, is sort of like the third figure that you've been introduced to. The first one was, was Zerubbabel in chapter 1 of Ezra, who through the instruction of, 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 of King Cyrus, came with the people of God to Jerusalem. When God spoke through Cyrus and said, the punishment to the Jewish people was now finished for their wickedness towards God. We have Zerubbabel who comes with a group of people who travel thousand kilometers and they arrived in Jerusalem. And as they got there, they found the situation was not great. They experienced opposition as we saw in chapter 4. People not wanting them to rebuild their nation, which is the center of it was the temple. And then last time we saw we are introduced to the figure of Ezra. A man who loved God, who loved his word, who led basically the second wave of people from Babylon to Jerusalem. And as they traveled, they, they, they had to trust God to protect them and not uh, the protection of soldiers uh, from, the, uh, from, from Babylon. And now we are going to, we're entering into sort of like the third phase of the exiles. Those who come with um, Nehemiah. But before we get there, Nehemiah tells us why he was moved to go back to Jerusalem in the first place. He is among those who are left behind. He enjoys a prominent position in this nation. He is a cupbearer for the king, so he's close to those who are in authority. He hears from one of his brothers. We are not sure here is it the brother by birth, biological birth, or by, by brother because he happens to be a Jew as well. He hears from those who have been going back and forth between Jerusalem and Babylon. He asks them, how are things in Israel? How are things in the motherland? As they, as they listen, as he listens to them, the, the news he hears cause him great sorrow. He hears that the city, in verses 3, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. We are not sure when this happened. It could be that when Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city, which is a long time ago from now, a long, a very long time ago, the commentators estimate between three and four hundred years at this time. It could be then that the city was not restored, that the people who had gone back with Ezra and with Zerubbabel had restored the temple. But the city itself, the border of the city that protects it from being attacked by other nations around them had not been set up 
So, he hears this and he turns to sorrow. He is broken up by this. The nation that he loved, the place of his forefathers. It causes, when he hears this news, verse 4, he sits down, he weeps. For days he mourns, he fasts. He prays before the God of heaven. So he is not uh, unmoved by what is happening. He is not cold to the situation that is happening to the people of Israel. Even though he is a thousand kilometers away, he is not hearing it and, say, and says, Ah, shame. I hope they come right. He hears it and he is broken by it. He is broken by the fact that these people live in an insecure place. He is broken by the anxiety that comes with living in an insecure place. I'm sure all of us being South Africans have experienced a housebreaking or some kind of a, a violent act against us or whether someone comes and takes your phone. Imagine how you feel after that. Imagine how you feel in the same house that you've been broken into. Imagine how you feel in the same uh, street where your cell phone was taken, your money or your wallet was taken. Imagine the anxiety that comes with that place. Yes, even though you are home and it's a joyous place and it's supposed to be a safe place, it can cause anxiety. I feel this every time I drive on the street in which I, I had a terrible car accident. A part of me always slows down when I'm there as if the car is going to come again. I imagine this is how Nehemiah felt. He, he felt for the people of Israel. He felt uh, the anxiety of their suffering. He was moved by it and he was moved uh, to pray about it, to mourn their distress. To not, he, he did not continue his happy life, as it were. It saddened him deeply, as if someone had died. So what does he do? Verses 5 to 11. Godly sorrow leads to faith. And that faith to him is expressed through repentance and prayer. Godly sorrow should lead to faith. What does it do? We see in, uh, in, verses, in verses 5 to 11, at least uh, three things there that happened to him. Or, 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 yeah, three things that I want us to note. Is that faith remembers the promises of God. He remembers the promises that God made to the people of Israel. Verses 5. He says, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He, again, in verses 8, 
He quotes Deuteronomy uh, 4, verses 24. He says, Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, If you are, unha- if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, even if you are ex- your exiled people, I have the furthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them into the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. First of all, he, he, he remembers the promises of God, the God of the covenant. The God who chose the people of Israel and says, you are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to protect you and I'm going to bless you. He reminds as if he reminds himself and God through this prayer of these promises that you are a God of a covenant of love who has said that if you love him if we love you and keep your commands you will be you will do good for us a God who gave them his laws a God who instructed them that if you obey, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey, you'll be punished. But in the punishment will be the scattering of the people onto the furthest horizons. You'll be removed from the land. He is coming to God and he's asking God on the basis of these promises. He's saying, God, now your people have gone back into the land, they are making sacrifices. They are doing their best to follow you. He says, God, protect them. Keep to the covenant in which you set up with our forefathers, Moses, Abraham, and uh, Isaac. And secondly, we see there that faith knows that we are sinful and that God is holy. Faith knows that we are sinful and that God is holy. He then goes on to confess his sins before God, verse 6. He says, I confess the sins, the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, your decrees, and laws that you gave to us. So therefore, in other ways, he's saying that you cannot, we deserve the situation that we are in as a people. The reason why we are cast into exile is because we are disobedient towards you. And you did this in your holiness because you hate sin. We, we understand that we are sinful people. So in other words, he's not coming to God with a prideful heart, saying, I deserve this. He's not coming to God, basically naming and claiming the blessings from him. He is coming to God with humility, knowing that whatever comes from God is a gift from him. Because Faith knows that, true faith knows that we are sinful and that God is holy. And then we see in verses 
uh, 1 to 11, is that faith also knows that hope comes from God. Hope comes from God. That is why he is before God on his knees praying to him. That is why he is reminding God of these promises. That is why he comes to God and he says, God, Lord, please be attentive to my prayers. Three times in this text. Hear the prayers of your servant. That is why he comes to God and he says, yes, I'm going to go and ask the king for permission to go and help the people of Israel to rebuild. But I know that authority comes from you. Power comes from you. You're the one who moves kings to do the right thing. That is why he prays, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Notice how he's even referring to the king that is going to ask for permission to go to Jerusalem. He's just a man, isn't he? But it is you, God, who will grant favor. It is you, God, that is being prayed to. It is God that he is pleading to, that his, that his ears would be attentive to his suffering, the, the pain that he is feeling now as he mourns what is happening in Israel, but also the pain that is being felt by those in Israel who delight in revering the name of God. So before he even goes to ask for permission to this king, he prays for favor from God who has power even over this king that he's going to ask for, for, for permission. Faith knows that hope comes from God. Yes, there are means in which God exercises um, uh, his hope to us in the Christian community, in his providence in giving you a good job, in giving you a family that cares and loves you, to be genuinely concerned about your welfare. But above all of that, God is the one who provides. God is the one who directs things to work in our favor. God is the one who uses all things to draw us to himself. God is the one who has absolute sovereignty. This is something that we find hard to believe at times. We think that if I, if I nag this person enough, I remember as a child, if I nag my parent enough, then I will get what I want. And as adults, we do the same, don't we? Say, if I ask enough, if I pout enough in the office, if I uh, plead enough, 
If I manipulate perhaps the situation, things will go my way. We have forgotten that hope comes from God. We do not turn to God in prayer to ask Him to work in the people that have the power to change our lives somewhat in, the, in, a, in a worldly sense. We do not go to the one who gives life. And that is an encouragement to us this morning. We should be challenged by what Nehemiah is doing. The one who goes before God, before going before man. And what happens when he goes before man? Let's look briefly at chapter 2 that we, are, that we did not read. When he goes before man, verses 4 of chapter 2, he is there before the king. He is obviously in mourning about what is happening in uh, the nation of Israel. And the king asks him, Why are you so sad? He tells him what, has happened, what happened in Judah. Verses 4 The king says, said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. Look at what happens. Look at the priority. Even before the king, in his heart you can imagine, he is praying before God, before giving an answer to this king who is asking him, Why are you sad? Why are you, why are you downcast here in, in my presence? He prays before God, and then he answers the king. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. He asks the king. He acts. He He's not just praying, but he's now, he is taking the bold step of asking. And when he does ask, God in his grace grants his request. Even though the king is the one who is granting it, look at verse 8. It is the hand of God at work causing this request to be granted verse 8 and became the gracious hand of god and because the, the sorry the, and because the grace the gracious hand of god was on me the king granted my request because he had gone to god in prayer and god had hand was on him and God had seen that this is important that he really cares about the people about my people the requests were granted who is to be praised in this situation first and foremost God 
God is the one whose hand worked to bring this about. God is the one whom he prayed to in chapter 1 to remember his promises that he had made to the people of Israel. God is the one whom he prayed to before he went to the king and asked for favor. God is the one whom he prayed to even as he was in the presence of the king before he asked for permission to come to Judah. Godly sorrow, yes, should lead you to feel and mourn for those who mourn. But what we learn in the book of Nehemiah is that godly sorrow should lead us to put our faith in God. It should drive us to the promises of God. And it should drive us to our knees as well. And it should drive us to action. So what does that look like well, for you and I here at Karshes Swane? Um, it means that when you see one of us struggling, going through a tough time, we should not ignore their circumstance. We should do the best we can to remedy that. We should feel for them. But we should do, we should do more than just feel for them. We should be burdened by what burdens them and in our burden we should go to God in prayer but as we do that we need to do something we can't do nothing for Nehemiah it meant he had to go to the king and open his mouth and say may I please go to Judah for you and I in prayer and in trusting God and his promises, it may mean doing something. It may mean taking, I don't know, what you have and sharing with those who do not have. It means more than prayer. Yes, prayer is important. It means doing something as you trust in God. It means, yes, if we are concerned about uh, what is happening, I don't know, in the world, what is happening in our uh, country, it means, yes, feeling and having the right emotion about the state of the poor. It means going to God in prayer. But it also means that in, with the means that God has given you to take action in faith. Sometimes that action may be going and asking others to do more than you can do. Sometimes that, that action may mean you doing something because you are able to do that small thing. But notice the sequence of things here. You need to feel rightly, number one. You need to think rightly, number two. Going to the promises of God. You need to go to God 
with your feelings and your mind in prayer and you need to act rightly. At times, we skip even the first one. We don't feel rightly about what is happening. We don't even think about it in, in, in godly ways. Therefore, we don't go to God in prayer and we don't do anything about it. But the encouragement to us this morning is to look at Nehemiah and to ask God to help us through his spirit to have the right emotions, to remember the promises of God, to go to God in prayer, and to not just be people who are merely praying for what is happening, but to actually do something about it. Let's pray and ask God for help with that. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would make us into a community of believers who follow the example that you have seen with Nehemiah this morning, who has broken as he heard about the suffering of your people, who went to you, Lord, and trusted in your promises and went to you in prayer, but did not end there, but was courageous enough to open his mouth before the king, but knowing that you, Lord, you are in control of all kings, that you hold their hearts in your hands. May we know that, Lord, as believers and trust you. May that uh, encourage us to be bold. I pray and ask of this in Jesus' name. Amen.